we have a lot of unregistered and non-voting voters here in Texas. And if we can bring them into the electorate and make people feel like their voices are heard, we're going to flip the state. And we're not just going to flip the state. We're going to make it sustainably blue. That's the goal that we are ultimately building to. And, you know, 2022 is just a start towards that goal. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Hudson Kavanaugh, who's the director of data science at the Texas Democratic Party. I spoke with Hudson about his path to his current role and about how the Texas Democratic Party employs data science in modeling partisanship among voters and what they learned from what they did in 2020 and what they're hoping to do in the 2022 election cycle. If you're interested in the intersection of data and analytics and the progressive movement, you'll want to listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Hudson Kavanaugh of the Texas Dems. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Hudson, would you mind introducing yourself, giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. So uh, my name is Hudson Kavanaugh. I am the director of data science here at the Texas Democratic Party. So I've been with the party since 2019. But before that, um, I really cut my teeth in the New York uh, tech scene, actually. So born and raised in New York. I think that's shaped a lot of my worldview. You know, I grew up riding the subway every day. Um, and I still, you know, that's where my family is. It's where my roots are. Um, but I went to college at Middlebury uh, College in Vermont which was obviously a big change of pace. But there, um, you know, was where I first started getting interested in data and data analysis. And actually, originally, I was really excited about using it to study politics. You know, I was uh, a Latin American studies major, and I was really interested in sort of the political economy of the US and, you know, the region. And I really focused on Cuba, actually. And so I did a bunch of sort of uh, regressions and stuff. And I sort of felt limited by Stata, which is what I was using, and got excited about learning Python. And so that's sort of where this whole adventure began. Had you studied stats and stuff before college? Or was that all starting in college, the data science-y sort of stuff? So I'd taken a class. I had a very generous professor who um, I was really interested in MBA statistics at the time, who did a part-time project where I was just trying to build sort of um, composite analytics using basketball stats. Um, and that was actually when I first got really interested in statistics. You know, when you actually get a subject matter that you're really excited about, the abstract concepts that are sort of academic feel very interesting and fun. You know, who is the best player in the NBA? Who should the Knicks sign? Things like that. Um, and so that's how I first got really like interested. wins over replacement sort of st stats, right? Exactly. So like digging into, um, you know, win scores for 48. Um, back then we were using like the John Hollinger PER stat. 
And I felt this stat was was not very good. So my idea at the time was, you know, what is the relative value of a steal versus a block versus a rebound? How do we quantify that in one sort of um, way? It's funny, throughout my career, I've been really excited about doing projects that are sort of uh, in line with my interests. So my first big Python project was building basically a, a computer that could play Settlers of Catan. And that was really uh, how I sort of started to teach myself Python was, um, okay, you know, how many squares are there here? What is the most efficient way to compute? Like what the next turn should be, things like that. And, you know, I don't think that program ever would have beaten any human, but it was a really interesting way to sort of learn the concepts of Python. I mean, it's the same thing for programming and, and statistics. If you have something you want to build, it's a lot more interesting to build a program. If you have something you want to analyze, it's a lot more interesting to learn the tools to do that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It sounds like you came out and got into the New York tech scene. Is that what you're saying? What? Tell me how so. Yeah, I graduated college um, and due to a, a complicated thing, sort of the job that I had uh, lined up, I was going to move and work for 80,000 hours over in Oxford. But I jumped into the New York tech scene and didn't really have a job lined up. So I just started in sales. And um, from there, you know, I realized hey, I think we can make this more efficient if we do this different operational thing. I did some data analysis and pitched to leadership. And they were like, okay, we can implement your changes. And this is sales for whom? Um, it was a company called Mighty. Basically, they were trying to reduce the cost of litigation finance for small claims. So say you're in a car accident and you are trying to access some money to cover uh, you know, medical costs or any sort of unforeseen cost against the value of your, your case. The idea was to create a marketplace with buyers and sellers to reduce the cost of that. And that company has taken many different forms over the years. Um, but they really were where I got uh, passionate about starting to do programming at, at more of a professional level. And so, you know, I started in sales. I moved into operations because I was really interested in these sort of processes and making things more efficient. And I kept asking our developers, hey, can you add this to our data model? You know, can you write a query for this? And after a while, they got fed up and they're like, Hudson, you know, like, hang out with me after work for a couple hours. Let's teach you SQL. And, um, you know, little by little, uh, I just got hooked. And from there, I started learning Python in my free time. And I was there for a long time. I did a general assembly course um, way back in 2016, just gradually got a little bit more technical and more technical. And I, I had this experience where breaking into programming is a real ego hit for people who are overachievers. It's really hard to hear a bunch of jargon that you don't know what it means um, or, you know, where people are explaining concepts that don't come easily to you. For me, school came very easily to me. I gradually just sort of got past this imposter syndrome and got really excited about, you know, learning all these new things. And so after that role, I, you know, moved on to a couple other companies, a company previously called BounceX, now Wonderkind, and started doing, you know, harder and harder things as, as I went along and, you know, working with smarter and smarter folks. And I got to this place where it was like, if I wasn't the dumbest person in the room, you know, I, I wasn't learning the most, I was getting bored. And so I just kept moving from one thing to the other, you know, um, doing it until I, I finally felt comfortable with whatever I was working on. And then um, moving on to the next thing uh, as soon as I was, you know, fully comfortable. I think in a way, the, the tech scene for me provided sort of a, you know, a secondary or a tertiary education after college where... This is something that I tell a lot of younger uh, developers, especially who are interested in getting into politics. Sometimes the private sector can invest in you in a way that the public sector can't or campaigns can't. Um, so I found that to be a really useful way to learn a lot. If at any point in your life you get yourself in a position where you're 
interested in learning and you're propelling yourself forward in a learning space, it really redounds to not, not just like to a career or something, but to make the days interesting, to make life interesting. We have a very anti-intellectual country sometimes. There's a lot of people that want to avoid certain kinds of learning. I, almost everybody has something that they're passionate about and, you know, and pick up information about, but like learning skills, like programming, learning skills, like stats, it's not for everybody. But if you get yourself in a positive feedback loop around that, I think that's to your benefit. What were you thinking about politics along this time? Like, because now you're working for the Texas Democratic Party. What were you thinking about politics when you're, when you're doing regular tech stuff? Yeah. Um, so I, I've always been very invested in politics. I've always been knocking doors around presidential cycles. But uh, actually, it was a happy accident. I really wanted to work for the Clinton campaign in 2016. And, um, you know, I applied to be a data scientist. I was, you know, a year into um, writing Python every day for my job. And I was like, oh, I'm going to get this. I'm so excited to, you know, be on the data science team, the Clinton campaign. And they rightfully rejected me. You know, I wasn't ready. And that turned out to be a really happy accident for me because, um, you know, a lot of the sort of New York tech scene experience that I was talking about was after that. And so I really saw that as an opportunity for how do I get the skills to really be valuable to a campaign or to a progressive organization of some kind? You know, how do I build the technical skills that I can bring over? And not just technical skills, you know, um, using sort of agile methodologies and all the sort of buzzwords that you, you hear in tech. I really saw it as this opportunity to learn a lot. And I think by 2019, I sort of opened my eyes again. The, the Democratic primary was ramping up and I was like, how do I help? I was trying to figure out who was doing really interesting stuff and, you know, where I could really use the skill set that I built. Because, you know, by this point, I felt really comfortable with a lot of my technical skills, you know, machine learning and data engineering and things like that. And I was just getting coffee a couple times a weekend just with various folks being like, who's doing interesting things? Uh, who should I talk to? And I got connected to Lauren Pulley, who was the CTO at um, Texas Democratic Party, and I believe was on this podcast. Was on the podcast. And one of those fairly... Well, more common, but fairly unusual, very qualified people in tech and data who have moved into progressive or democratic politics. Yeah. And she's been an unbelievable mentor to me. I'm so grateful for, you know, being able to work with her for a long time. And, you know, she had a management consultant experience. She was also had development experience. So she had everything, that you, you know, and she's an unbelievable person manager and sort of collaborator. So she really showed me the complete package of what you could sort of be in progressive data. And the way that I ultimately, you know, joined the TDP was she was facing this decision point where it was like, either we acquire a model from a vendor, because essentially the partisanship models were not performing very well in Texas. One, they were missing some data for folks. Um, two, they weren't updating with new field data. Um, and obviously in 2018, there was a lot of field work done. And so that wasn't actually making it into these models. But three, you know, we have open primaries. So, um, Party registration isn't on the voter file. Basically, all these and other things meant that these national models were not actually performing very well in Texas. So the question was, you know, do I spend $70,000 to uh, acquire a model from a vendor or do I build this in-house? Do I spend $70,000 employing someone to build it? Exactly. Well, <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I was paid less than that. But she had sort of shown that you can take a huge pay cut and um, do it, you know, in a way that was really meaningful and valuable. And, you know, we, we've talked a lot about sort of career thinking, but she pitched me on this project and it was the perfect intersection of the machine learning and data science skills that I built up, but also this sort of data engineering skill set. 
And together, we sort of imagined a, a new way, a state party owned partisanship model. And that was sort of the first four to six months of my time there was just building this model. And, you know, we made some decisions that were very different from how other people have done it. We didn't commission an expensive survey at the beginning. We used field data and we cut it in a way that was representative of Texas. Texas is a big place and, you know, a couple thousand observations, it would be very tough to represent all the different geographies and, you know, demographics and stuff in a meaningful way that was actually helpful. Um, so what we built was this way of leveraging field data, you know, all the work of volunteers knocking doors, making calls, and trying to leverage that data sort of in real time to create a better partisanship model. And that was sort of the first project. And, you know, from there, it's, uh, I've been here uh, almost two years, and it's been great. Tell me a little bit more about, like, how well that model works and why it does as well as it does. Let me first start with why it does the way that it does. Um, so most models, you know, this is true of 99% of partisanship models that are out there. Basically, you'll do a big survey at the, at the front end. You know, you'll ask 4,000 people, you know, which party do you support? Um, you basically then match that back to the voter file. And that becomes your training set. And so no matter how fancy your, your model is, garbage in, garbage out is the saying in, in data science. If your training set isn't representative of the thing you're trying to predict, you're never going to get a good output. Instead of doing that approach, the other problem is it's a huge upfront cost, right? A lot of that uh, $70,000 that I quoted is actually just running these surveys um, and getting really quality data to, to bootstrap that model. So we try to get around that, that fixed upfront cost um, and use a bigger than sort of 4,000 training set. And basically, we said, okay, we've got, you know, I'm making up numbers here, but 5 million partisanship IDs in the last eight years. Now, let's slice that in a way that is representative of Texas, includes all the geographies, is balanced by demographics, by income, by education, by, you know, all these different factors. And now we're left with, you know, a little bit short of a million data points that our model can learn from. There's this trade-off between how many features, which is like um, data points about somebody you throw to a model, and observations in terms of like how many people you have characterized. The more observations you have, the more features you can safely sort of put in the model. By greatly expanding um, the size of the model, we were able to actually basically include more data um, and be sort of more computationally intensive that was sort of the core idea that was very different from other places. Then we basically recalibrate it based on different geographies and based on election data that we had and use as many differing data points as we could. And so what we found was, um, you know, the other model that performs fantastically is the DNC model. They do sort of the more traditional approach that I mentioned, but what they do really well is they incorporate field data. Other than the DNC model and the, the Biden for president model, you know, there was no vendor model that could compete with us because nobody else has access to all the field data we have. This is something that I, I didn't really understand at the time, but state parties are uniquely positioned to have access to all the data in the state, every campaign's data. And so that centralization of data means that you can do much more powerful sort of modeling based on that. Where is that data centralized for Texas? Basically, it's in VAN, as I'm sure you're familiar with. <laughs> We actually access it through a backend called BigQuery, um, which is a Google product that essentially allows you to parse and um, handle that data at scale. And the great thing about BigQuery is that, you know, okay, we've got 17 million registered voters, no problem. You know, it can crunch that data really quickly and give you sort of programmatic access in a way that um, really enables uh, this project. So, you know, everything that I've done is kudos to the DNC for making this investment and switching from for, for the real nerds out there, from Vertica to, to BigQuery and allowing for this kind of more powerful computing options. 
I love talking to someone who's so passionate about like a model of partisanship, you know, in one state for people who don't understand why would that be valuable? How can that inform resource allocation and campaigning, things like that? So that, that is a fantastic question. Um, so at a very basic level, a partisanship model just means um, making a prediction for each registered voter, if they were to vote, how likely would they be to vote for a Democrat versus a Republican? Um, so it's essentially saying, okay, this person has a score of 70, meaning that if they vote in the election, we think there is a 70% chance that they will vote for Democrats versus a 30% chance they'll vote for Republicans. And the idea is, for, for example, for get out the vote operations, um, we can really focus on who are the best people for us to talk to. It then gets much more complicated than that, right? Um, it's actually, I think, where the model and where really powerful modeling is important is finding those people that we are uncertain of, right? The people with, some, you know, somewhere in the 50s likelihood of voting Democrat. That helps us prioritize them for voter contact. So, you know, if someone has a, a score of 52, it's not saying that they're uh, an independent. It's not saying that they're persuadable. It's it's saying that we have no idea. We can't infer based on their demographics. We don't have good field data for them. So how can we, you know, prioritize our resources to know the most about the electorate prior to get out the vote so that we're ready to really hit the ground running when we are focusing on turnout? To what extent do you validate and change the model? Like as you're doing more field work, you're going to be out there learning that uh, Joe Smith or Henry B. Gonzalez is a Democrat, let's say. And do you then take a look at that and say, oh, we had him as only a 30% likely to be a Democrat. We need to update both this person and people like him. We rerun the model from scratch using the latest freshest uh, data that we can every couple of weeks or, you know, in the off cycle, maybe every couple of months. But what we do is we make sure to adjust that person's individual scores without basically dealing with the 17 million people. Um, we essentially make an overnight adjustment. So if I talk to Harry B. Gonzalez and he says he's a Democrat, when previously we thought he was a lean Republican, um, the next day users in van, that person will be moved around, you know, their score will be updated, they'll be in the right targets you know, and we make sure that that's adjusted. And then essentially, um, you know, that's sort of the learning for, for that particular person. But I think the even more interesting thing is, okay, so Henry B. Gonzalez turned out to be a Democrat. What does that mean about a lot of other people who might be like Henry B. Gonzalez? How does that update our priors about them? And so, you know, each time we're retraining the model, we are adjusting based on that latest information. I'm curious, do you track those changes and hold them and like, does that because that seems like that could provide some information about whether the model was wrong in the past, but it could also be information about what parts of the electorate are moving because it's not a static thing out there. There are certainly people who are going to vote Democrat no matter what or Republican no matter what, but there are certain people and they're very important who are moving who at a different point in time or as a result of different campaigning might vote differently. How do you see that or do you? Are you able to track changes in subsets of the electorate? We do have sort of sanity check heuristics for each demographic group where it's like, this is the proportion democratic. And we, we can see how that moves gradually um, and, you know, how that develops over time. Um, I think there's a risk in terms of um, overfitting to recent data points. And so generally our model is... Uh, 
you know, very reluctant to update its priors very quickly without a lot of information speaking to something. But absolutely. So um, that does help us get a shift in, in the electorate in different precincts in different regions. And when we combine that with, say, um, precinct level election results, we can see basically where the model and where those precinct results are most off. Um, and figure out what are the trends that make them likely to be off. Um, but in between that election results, just like you said, we are constantly updating, you know, what does this mean for, you know, Collin County and, and, and voter contact there? What does this mean for um, Bear County? You know, all, all these different places across Texas. And what does that mean for, you know, different statehouse races or different ways that we can prioritize our resources differently? There's an interesting trade-off in data science and, and this sort of thing where um, there's a question of, am I predicting what's going to happen versus am I focusing on where my highest marginal leverage point is? And I think we really try to focus on, you know, where is the next call I can make? Where is the next door knock I can do um, over saying, I'm going to have a perfect crystal ball uh, prediction of what's going to happen because politics is unpredictable. It's very hard to know exactly what turnout is. And I think um, often we talk about partisanship as driving electoral outcomes more than turnout. And, you know, one of the things that we really saw in our 2020 retrospective was the biggest lever in whether we were winning or losing in different places or statewide um, was a function of turnout. That is another really important thing to measure, but it's very hard to know how turnout is, you know, playing when you're six months out from an election. When you look at the model that you had going into 2020 and you look at the results, where were you most off, like in demographics or in geographies and why? Yeah. So um, that's a question we ask ourselves every day. I think, um, you know, the, the top line and the most important one was we were overly optimistic about Latino voters. But I think there's a narrative that is uh, hard to distinguish. So I'm going to do my best. Um, we believe that, yes, we were a little bit too optimistic, right? We, we had the average uh, Latino Democratic support, you know, number at around 67%, let's say. And it probably turned out to be more like 64%. You know, that was a miss. And for our model, that was a big error relative to other demographics. Wasn't that miss in certain parts of the state? Yes. And yes. especially in the Rio Grande Valley in South yeah. Texas. Yeah. Um, so especially um, in the RGV in South Texas, you know, that's where the biggest prediction errors were with regard to partisanship. But what we saw, um, you know, only about 20% of Latino voters in Texas actually live in South Texas in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, and what we saw was in that other 80%, the underperformance relative to what our expectations were um, was actually driven by differential turnout, meaning Republicans turned out at greater rates relative to expectations than Democrats turned out um, relative to expectations. Republican Hispanics, is that what you're saying? It's especially Republican Hispanics, but actually across the spectrum. So for example, um, you know, we went into the election with turnout scores for everybody, right? And we said, okay, this person, you know, um, let's say we have two, uh, you know, a Republican Latino person and a Democratic Latino person who are otherwise identical. Um, what we saw was that Republican Latino person turned out five to six percent more than we projected. So it was whereas, less that they were being persuaded. It was more that that team went and voted at a higher rate is what you're that, saying. That's exactly right. Excluding the Rio Grande Valley. The Rio Grande Valley, we, we lost the persuasion battle. But yes, I assume that the party's got to take stock of that, that and many other maybe that's to the Republicans credit in the way they campaigned or discredit because they did it in a duplicitous way or whatever, but like they were able to make that happen for their side. And maybe it, it was things that we should have done that we, that we haven't. How 
does sort of the retrospective on 2020 inform 2022 from your lens? Yeah, so that's a great question. You know, and, and the first thing that people think about when that question is asked is how do we message differently? Um, and, you know, there are certainly lessons that we can take away, and we are doing a lot of sort of research into how we can message better. But for a second, I want to focus on just direct voter contact and other sort of um, levers that we or campaigns are more directly accessing and that don't cost a lot of money. So I think the two things were, um, frankly, across Texas for a, uh, a swing state, we were outspent almost three to one by Republicans. Um, and frankly, even given the amount of investment that we did, the volume of voter contact that we did, that campaigns did, that organizations across the, the state did, um, was not high enough for the ambitions that we had collectively. You know, at, at a basic level, we needed to knock more doors and make more calls. And um, that's something that we are really gearing up to do this cycle. The party has learned a lot in terms of how we can better support, for example, county parties to do local organizing and recruit more volunteers. And there are a lot of extremely engaged county parties across Texas um, that we're really grateful for. And the question is, how do we get more value out of those folks? Um, how do we set them up for success? So I also think, frankly, um, there was an over-reliance on um, traditional ads and digital spending and basically money raising and relying on that to win, as opposed to really focusing on grassroots get out the vote operations, um, and especially at the congressional level, frankly. I think that was a really missed opportunity. And I um, this gets me to my second point, which is even for the volume that we did, we could have been more efficient collectively. The big opportunity there was we spent way too much time talking to reliable Democratic voters, voters that absolutely were going to vote uh, against Trump no matter what we said or did. We spent too much time talking to those folks. And basically, when we do a retrospective analysis, we see that, yes, reminding the, those folks to vote has a you know half a percent to one percent increase in their likelihood of voting. The people that we really missed were our turnout targets folks that are lower propensity, that are more inconsistent voters, or that are new to voting. And we found that a single voter contact to that kind of person, right? Someone who we think is a strong Democrat, but is an inconsistent voter um, or is new to voting. We found that talking to them led to a, you know, five to 6% increase in their likelihood to vote. And so if we had simply reprioritized our time from these reliable voters to these turnout targets, we would have done a lot better um, up and down the ballot. And this might, uh, you know, ruffle some feathers, but I think there's this notion especially at sort of the state house level. My partner is actually a state house representative in, in Wisconsin, and she believed this. And she, um, you know, this idea of the way to win down ballot is to reduce roll-off among the most reliable Democrats, right? To make sure that people are voting all the way down the ballot. They're voting Biden at the top and then representative, whatever, uh, down ballot. And what we've found, you know, over and over as we're looking at the numbers is that it's way more valuable to focus on turning out a new turnout target Sure, you want name ID to be high, but when you're talking about get out the vote efforts, we are wasting time by talking to reliable Democrats. We need to be talking to these turnout targets and really believe that we can turn them into the reliable voters that we need to flip Texas. And we did do that in, in a lot of situations and opportunities. And where we did, it was really effective. I think that's a, a huge learning that we're really trying to double down on. And we're really trying to make this easier for uh, van users by just loading targets. They make it really easy. You know, these are the people that we need to confirm what party they support. Um, these are the people that we need to turn out. And, you know, here's everybody else in between and make it as easy as possible for folks to know who to talk to and when. I talked to one of your candidates for Congress, Sri Kulkarni, recently. His beef was much more with the D-Trip than the state party, but he really felt like he was pushed into the fundraising and advertising model 
do you talk to the candidates and sort of debrief them as a party? And are there changes that you're going to make going into 2022 based on that kind of feedback? Yeah, um, you know, we, we've talked to a, a number of candidates, both su- successful and unsuccessful. Um, I've talked to Sri many times. He's a very passionate advocate um, and uh, was extremely helpful for us in sort of doing our retrospective and, and talking about these things. Yes, the hardest conversations to have are the ones um, where they did everything right. Um, you know, frankly, a good example is Akila Basie in, in the State House. Um, her campaign did everything right. They knocked the right doors. They did a ton of voter contact. Um, and unfortunately, they didn't win. We basically had no notes for them. That's That call is really hard to have. Sometimes you're just in a district that is not going to elect you. Sometimes. And sometimes there are a lot of other candidates who, who worked really hard and, you know, um, I know everybody across the state really, really gave it their all. And I think it's just we need to be very um, thoughtful about these sort of analytical takeaways and how we can better uh, prioritize our resources in the future. So we, we do try to talk to candidates. I haven't talked to every single candidate, but, um, you know, we, we have a number of sort of forums where we've briefed them and, you know, given retrospectives to some of the bigger Texas names and uh, more local candidates. And, um, you know, we as a party, I think we're really trying to close that communication gap, not just for candidates, but also campaign managers and, you know, uh, local organizers and really try to have this conversation because it's important that we build the credibility that people believe when we gave, give this advice that it is based in data and, and evidence, but being that we're listening to them, right? And that we're not just top down saying, this is what you're supposed to do, blah, 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 blah. Um, but that it's a two-way communication. Midterms, with uh, Democratic presidents and Congresses tend to be tricky for the party in power. Would you advise a well-known, well-liked candidate to run statewide in Texas in 2022? I have no idea who you could possibly be referring to, but at a generic level, um, absolutely. You know, um, I think when we when we run and we are competitive and we hold Republicans to account, we are making progress towards uh, not just this cycle, but future cycles. We have all these like uh, bell curves of the probability of us winning and, you know, the things that need to happen right for us to win and, you know, at, at different levels of the ballot. And the answer is we can absolutely win in 2022, but it's going to take a lot of work, right? I, I don't advise a candidate that's not interested in rolling up their sleeves and getting in this race. But if someone is ready to, to put in the work and show up uh, for phone banks and, and all these things, Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't need to tell you, but the future of Texas is the future of politics in this country. We have a lot of unregistered and non-voting voters here in Texas. And if we can bring them into the electorate and make people feel like their voices are heard, we're going to flip the state. And we're not just going to flip the state. We're going to make it sustainably blue. That's the goal that we are ultimately building to. And, you know, 2022 is just a start towards that goal. It's going to be a steep one. It's We've seen it happen in other states as they are changing demographically and well-run politically. The Colorados, the Virginias, maybe Georgia. It would sure be nice in Texas. Texas, typically Democrats are really outgunned lately, though. Are you raising false hopes that where we can be throwing money into a state that's very expensive and uh, the likelihood it doesn't seem that that high of winning? Yeah. Um, well, to to paraphrase Stacey Abrams, um, relative to Texas, Georgia was a cheap date. You were able to really compete in Georgia for a little bit less. Whereas in Texas, you know, there's 17 million registered voters. It's a big state. 
an enormous number of unregistered voters. Um, and I think that actually presents a real opportunity um, for us because, you know, unlike in some other places, you know, there are so many voters for us to register in Texas. It's not like a state like a Wisconsin, for example, where a very high proportion of the electorate is registered, you know, there's relatively high turnout, all these things, you know, we have these two goals of how do we register voters? And then how do we get people to turn out to the polls, both of which, if we look at the Annals Institute studies, are tractable, you know, these are things that we have proven we can do. It's just how how does it compare on the Republican side? Do they have equally as many unregistered voters? Not even close. Basically, they're a very high proportion of white voters in Texas, over 90%. It's tough to say exactly what the number is because we don't know what the denominator is exactly, but um, a very high proportion of white voters are um, registered to vote. Whereas voters of color, um, there are way more registration targets than there are among white voters. And we project that you know something between 65 to 70 and maybe even higher percent of unregistered folks who are citizen voting age population um, are going to be Democrats. And so, you know, that is an enormous opportunity for not just the people who are in Texas, but for statewide organizations to know that their dollar is going very far um, because, you know, we can very efficiently generate votes, which is very much the Georgia model, you know, using voter registration to change the shape of the electorate. For example, you know, almost two fifths of Texas is Latino. But when voting actually happens, it's under a quarter. So how do we make the Texas electorate look like what Texas actually looks like? This is something that we can absolutely accomplish, but it takes a lot of work. How much higher is the bar raised by what the Texas legislature is doing in the rules? Yeah, nobody who works with the Texas Democratic Party is surprised by the depths to which Texas Republicans are willing to stoop. Um, but the threats to our voting rights, the threats to access to reproductive health care and these other sort of incursions to our, our basic liberties um, are so blatant um, and so appalling, I think, that I believe and I expect to see a, a real backlash, um, you know, maybe not just in 2022, but following. You know, this is the kind of thing that makes everybody on our team and folks that I've talked to across the state um, extremely animated and extremely fired up to figure out how we can flip this. It's just appalling the way that um, they are using sort of political points to disenfranchise voters across the country, right? They tried to throw out votes during the election. In Harris County, there were drive-through voting um, you know, challenges and, and things of that nature. Um, you know, they're not trying to play by the rules and they know that we are going to win. It's just a matter of how we can accelerate the curve towards the demographics favoring Democrats. Frankly, I think they're coming from a place of fear and we're trying to seize on that and, um, you know, really get people to believe that a blue Texas is possible. And it's not just possible once or twice. It's possible for the long term. And, you know, I think a lot of people have made this connection. We've got 40 electoral college votes. The path to a Republican president is extremely challenging unless you are able to run through Texas. They count on it. Since Lloyd Benson, I haven't seen anyone think predicting Texas to go Democratic, even close in a yes, presidential. Ab- absolutely. But um, it's worth noting that, you know, Karl Rove could have worked anywhere last cycle. He focused on Texas. Um, and despite being outspent three to one, you know, we closed the, the deficit by almost seven points relative to 2016. And um, 
you know, that was 2016 was progress over 2012. And, you know, it, it doesn't take sort of arcane demographic arguments to if you just plot, you know, a scatter plot of the two way vote share between Democrats and Republicans, the trend is very clear. Demographics are not necessarily destiny unless we're willing to do the work to achieve it. You got to figure that they'll change their tactics if they need to win in a different way. They'll they'll adapt. Is there a question that I haven't asked that you'd like to be asked? The question I was hoping you would ask is why a state party? Um, why do, did I think that that is sort of the right place to be? Hudson, why did you go work for a state party? Why is that the right place to be? Well, I, I think two things. Um, state parties are unique in that they have all of the data, uh, you know, aggregated by every campaign in the state from the presidential on down to, you know, the, the dog chaser or, you know, whatever local election we're talking about. It's usually um, a dog catcher, but dog catcher, yeah. <laughs> that might be a better name. <laughs> um, <laughs> But because we have access to all that data, we have this opportunity to centralize data operations in a way that every campaign, instead of recreating the wheel in every single congressional race or every single statehouse race, we can just create centralized data products that let everybody else, um, you know, just immediately get leverage out of that. But I think the second thing of why a state party is there are a lot of really amazing vendors in the democratic space that we are extremely grateful for. You know, um, I, I can go through a huge list uh, that we rely on every single day, but I think there are some things that have to be core competencies of state parties and the DNC. And that, you know, maybe we're not going to build a texting platform from scratch, for example, but I think we can do sort of data science and understanding voters in-house um, in a way that, is owned by the democratic space, right? When I leave, the Texas partisanship model is not gonna be resold to other states for X dollars. Um, it's owned by the TDP and the TDP can freely share it with any other state party or the DNC or, or things of that nature. And so I think we underinvest in centralizing, especially technical IP in these institutions that are gonna last for a long time. You know, they're, they're incredibly smart people who build amazing systems in presidentials, even in primaries that spin down or never heard from again. And some of them open source that stuff and that's great and other people can build on it. But there's, it's much harder to sort of sustain and iterate on that. And if I've learned anything from tech, it's that the first time you build something is not necessarily the right way to do it. Um, and that the way you get really good at something is you constantly iterate. You know, you get feedback, you make adjustments. And so, you know, that's what I'm so excited about for the partisanship model, for example, or, you know, a lot of the voter registration efforts we're doing or our targets or, you know, a lot of things we've talked about thus far is how do we build lasting IP that will, you know, last long after I'm around um, that somebody else who's even smarter than me can come along to and say, well, this is cool, but what if I did this a little bit differently, you know, and, and really allow for that sort of organic um, sharing of IP to happen across states. And the DNC is doing a tremendous job. And I don't think this is being talked about enough. They're really focusing on building upstream data projects that allow states and other entities to have extremely powerful data that is easy to use. And I mentioned, you know, BigQuery, but what, what are you referring to there? So, for example, you know, um, they will not only provide, uh, you know, census data in a clean way, but they will, um, it was called the Blueprint Project, basically impute missing values, do a lot of sort of data cleaning that makes it very easy for this data to be used out of the box. Um, the other thing is they'll acquire data from, you know, a, a number of vendors and just make it available for, um, you know, us to use downstream for free, right? Vendors like Clarity and Civis and DEC and um, Target Smart and all these, you know, um, great 
folks that are that are doing amazing work, um, they'll provide some of that upstream data that allows us to do really powerful analytics. You know, even if it's not machine learning modeling, because they've already centralized that stuff. You know developing a model was half as long as it would have been if they hadn't done all that upstream work. And just from a data infrastructure perspective, you know, my machine breaks if I'm trying to run something complicated on 17 million rows, right? Um, but what they've done is provided a scalable tool in, in BigQuery that allows people like me to really get value out of it. And um, I think that's amazing. How do you set the boundary on that? Because like, and I've wondered this for several decades, there are all these data analytics software companies in the arena on our side, right? And there's probably a lot of those that you that arguably could have been built within the national party or within a state party. I think you could make the argument that you've made that like when you create a model within the party and it owns it, that it is more durable. You could also make the argument, I think, that it's more durable in an external company because there's a lot more incentive for them to keep that going. And because they might serve multiple masters and defray the costs over, you know, 50 state parties or whatever. How do you think about that boundary? I, I'm not certain about it myself. Yeah, I, I think it's a, a specific, very specific to whatever the product is. A state party is not a great place to have a 15-person development team to, you know, develop a, um, a something like minivan, for example, or um, something that uh, takes a lot of work and a lot of iteration and um, where you need front-end developers, back-end developers, everything like that. Um, you know, I think that's something that is best used where there is sort of a, um, a market competition incentive to create a good product. You know, probably a dialer tool is another good example, right? There's a lot of legal regulations that make dialers complicated. There's a lot of infrastructure considerations that make it really hard. How do you have a dialer that doesn't go down during get out the vote is a really hard problem to solve. And one that I, as the TDP, you know, do not want to take on myself unless there's a really good argument for it. But so I think it comes down to the same sort of question that startups Space, which is, okay, sure, I'll buy a CRM from somebody else, but what is my core competency, right? I, I pay Salesforce, I don't need to build my own CRM from scratch, but what am I uniquely good at? And I think data science and, and analytics are, are that for, um, you know, the state parties and the DNC. Um, and I think there's some amazing people working on that. But another example of this distinction is there's a firm called DEC, um, and they provide a product that, uh, you know, in some ways is similar to the DNC partisanship score and some ways similar to, you know, uh, the TDP. But one thing that they do that is would be really hard for us to emulate is, for example, they are parsing local donation data um, in a way that's extremely labor intensive and brittle. Right. It's going to break very quickly when, you know, X county updates, you know, this one uh, sort of broken Web page. And that's really hard uh, to maintain. And so, you know, them having a profit motive to keep that maintained, I think is really important. For example, acquiring phone numbers, you know, that is not a core competency of, of the state party. We rely on vendors for that um, right now. And, you know, these are just sort of examples. I think it's a case by case basis, but it's, it's important to be asking what are our core competencies. And I think understanding voters is the core competency of a state party and of the Democratic Party broadly defined. Well, it's fun to talk to you today. Uh, appreciate you taking the time. Anything else you want to say? Yeah, thanks so much. No, I'm uh, really grateful for the opportunity. Um, if there is anybody interested in working in, uh, you know, Democratic data, feel free to reach out. My email is hudson at txdemocrats.org. 
I think we have a real data uh, talent pipeline problem in progressive politics in general. And I think uh, it's it's really important that we get folks from from anywhere um, involved and plugged in and figure out where they can contribute and grow within the space. And I think that's something that we all need to be really focused on. And thank you to all the work that you do, um, you know, elevating voices from, you know, across the country who are doing this hard work. So, um, you know, really grateful for that. This amazing podcast. Thank you. That was Hudson Kavanaugh. Hudson is at texasdemocrats.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.